Welcome to Pocket Dilemmas, our podcast where we discuss political and economic questions which are facing the world today. I'm Jonathan Charles. Kerry Law is also here, as always, helping us to solve our dilemma today. And it is the role of technology in the COVID-19 era. The coronavirus pandemic has locked populations inside their houses, including uh, us talking here today, and put us in the spotlight of a new panoptic society where surveillance and control of the state presents dilemmas of freedom, democracy, transparency and civil liberties. Is technology in the COVID-19 era a threat to democracy? Or maybe quite the opposite, it's a chance to build a more inclusive world. Should we trust the tech to build a big tech future for all of us? What are pocket dilemmas? Are algorithms biased? Take away your job? Do you trust cryptocurrencies? What is the future of poverty? This is Dilemmas at EBRD.com. At the beginning of the lockdown in the UK, I certainly remember seeing this tweet. What has been the driving factor behind your company's digital transformation? Is it your CEO, your CFO or COVID-19? And yes, the pandemic has changed the structure and challenged the structure of the global economy and society as we know it. Yeah, Jonathan, it's funny. That was actually one of my favorite quotes coming out of all of the memes um, that we experienced, uh, you know, in the days after the COVID pandemic hit and the lockdown ensued. So I particularly enjoyed that. But, you know, what we've seen is governments around the world have really threatened to and are actually using these invasive methods of surveillance during the pandemic. These include things like tracking apps, the facial recognition technology, actually tracking credit card transactions, using cell phone information and video footage. So these are being used to track and trace, but also to quote unquote, catch people who violated quarantine orders. And while the surveillance has some obvious, you know, potential upsides to mitigating the pandemic, it can also be really discriminatory or even anti-democratic. And biases in these algorithms that people are using or these technologies are using um, reflect the biases that perhaps their creators have and they can translate into wider segregation and inequality. So the big question really remains, you know, even if tech, tech can help us overcome some of the challenges presented by the pandemic, do we actually trust the technology and those behind its deployment? Should we? And this relates to everything from misinformation campaigns to data, to data storage questions. Yeah, these are really very interesting questions. And I was thinking just the other day, you know, depending on how you view all of this, we've either made uh, 10 years of progress in the virtual world in, and, and in terms of the technical ability in 10 weeks in the way that people use it, or there's been 10 years of setback on privacy in 10 weeks. You've got to decide, I suppose, how you view the question. So that's what we're going to be discussing, the ethical dimensions of how technology is being used now during the pandemic, but also the consequences for the post-coronavirus period. And apart from all of that, how do we deal with the misinformation online? Let me remind you, you're listening to Pocket Dilemmas, the podcast which explores the political and economic problems which are shaping our world. You can review us on iTunes, email us at dilemmas at ebrd.com and follow us on Twitter at ebrd. So today's dilemma, is technology in the COVID-19 era a threat to democracy or is it a force for good and how much should we actually trust it? So to figure all of this out, we have a wonderful lineup of guests today. So we have Peter Pomerantsev, who's a senior fellow at LSE and author of a book on Russian propaganda called Nothing is True and Everything is Possible, as well as his latest book, which is This is Not Propaganda, Adventures in the War Against Reality. We also have Samuel Woolley, who is a research affiliate, founding director of the Digital Intelligence Lab and the author of The Reality Game, 
how the next wave of technology will break the truth. So welcome both of you. And um, quickly, I know this is a quick five seconds, but give me your quick five seconds on tech and democracy in the times of pandemic. Is it a force for good or is it a massive threat? So Sam, let's start with you. I think that it's, it's, a, it's a good thing and a bad thing. It's kind of a mixed because we have the ability to do contact tracing, which on the face of it seems good to track the virus and to prevent the spread. But at the same time, we also have an invasion of privacy and uh, big security questions that we need to be asking. Excellent. Peter? It's, it's a fantastic question. Um, I, th I think uh, it really it, it doesn't depend purely on the technology. It depends on the regime uh, and the governance model that it's playing out. And so inside authoritarian regimes, it's being used in very aggressive and malign ways. Democracies has probably more levers to push back. But, but I think something has fundamental has changed in that there was a huge tech clash happening in the last few years. Um, and, and in some sort of fundamental way, uh, in a very personal and human way. I think we all realized we wouldn't have been able to survive uh, psychologically during this pandemic without tech. So I don't know, just personally, and I'd love to see some poning on it. I think personally, I've, I've become you know, much less angry at the tech companies during a pandemic. I think I even logged onto Facebook again just to have a way to talk to my parents. So maybe some of that emotional bond that was starting to fray a little bit um has has returned and it'll be interesting to see if the tech companies can can make a little bit of progress on that i like that word tech lash actually peter that's that's a great word um trust is really at the heart of a lot of this isn't it you know the question of trust has been quite key during the managing of this pandemic uh, first of all how much we trust governments uh, whether with that trust we're ready to give up some of our key liberties uh, or indeed to, to stay at home. And trust has really fluctuated. If I think back to just before the crisis, trust in governments was, was quite low. And then in some governments, it, it got quite high again, then it slumped again. So what, what role, you know, when you think about trust, what role should technology play in times of this crisis? And what are the levels of trust in, in tech, Peter? Look, there's, 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 there's something very, very um, uh, fundamental that's being asked um, in the relationship between sort of people and tech, which I think the pandemic has sharpened, which is exactly, I think you, you put yourself very well, how, much, how many freedoms are people prepared to give up? Uh, what is that balance between the public and the private, between freedom and security? Um, and I don't think we've even started investigating that uh, as a society, to be honest. Maybe this is the opportunity when, when we do. Um, you know, remember, and there's all been all this fuss about kind of like, people should have the right to, to turn cookies on and off. And that was a really big kind of push in the, from the digital rights space. And it kind of makes sense in a way. People should have the right to, to know whether they're, they're, they're being traced through their online activity through, through cookies. But I don't know anyone who, give, who actually cared. Uh, now we just have all these buttons that we have to press about, you know, uh, are you okay with this site following you around the internet? And I think we just all press, yes, I am. So I just get on with it. Uh, I do think we all need to sit down as societies and try to work out what is that new frontier between the public and the private, because it's clearly fundamentally different to what it was. Well, I think it's quite interesting, Peter, isn't it? Here we are talking on Zoom today. You know, and Zoom is one of those technologies that has been embraced incredibly enthusiastically by individuals. The number of Zoom calls is up, you know, by hundreds of millions. Uh, and yet it's one with a much lower security ability than some other conferencing sites. But people seem quite happy in order to be able to communicate, to sacrifice some of their privacy. Yeah, exactly. And like, you know, 
I mean, I just I, I know that University of Texas and maybe Sam knows more about it have been doing some polling around this. What do people actually care about when they think about the internet? You know, listen to the British government, who I assume did do a lot of polling, um, who are rolling out their kind of their their um, uh, their governance white paper for the internet. They were really hammering on one thing terrorism and pedophiles you know i think that people are worried about that they're worried about terrorists online and they're worried about their kids um being swept up in in in, in some horror online but you know people seem to be incredibly lax about you know their facebook data and you know being on zoom and stuff like that samuel woolley what do you what do you make of this question of uh, trust in tech that's a good one. And I think that Kerry brought up a good point, which is that, you know, oftentimes we don't, we take it for granted that the, the tech or the algorithms behind the tech are sort of these uh, objective systems because they run on code or math. But when in fact, the actuality is that they're encoded with the, the beliefs and the values of the people who build them. And so while Peter's absolutely right, you know, people do just click through uh, terms of service and all of these sort of opaque, opaque agreements that determine where our data goes and how it gets used. At the same time, there's this really important work we have to do to connect the usage of that data to larger sociopolitical problems. So for instance, at the moment, uh, my research team at the University of Texas is studying what we're calling geopropaganda. So using people's location data in order to send political propaganda to them or to, uh, to if they've been to church or the shooting range or all of these sorts of things in the United States, to target them with high degrees of specificity with data-oriented uh, messaging. And that has a real effect on people's trust and really uh, can adversely affect how people trust institutions writ large as well. And Sam, actually, I'm going to jump in real fast. I realized I actually um, got your title wrong. So you are currently a professor at the University of Texas in Austin, is that correct? That's right, yeah, but it's okay. I'm still founding director of the Digintel Lab out in Silicon Valley, too. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I have, I have a question for you. So, I mean, yes, there's this question of, of obviously trust. Is there also a question of, are, are there new social contracts that we're navigating now? So is this a social contract between neighbors and governments and each other? And is this just part of the new reality? Yeah, that's a great question, Carrie. I think that the, the, the social contracts are changing and that technology companies absolutely have a role in all of this. And um, while I agree with Peter, technology has been integral in allowing us to connect with one another. And, you know, the kind of edge has been taken off in the anger against these companies. Simultaneously, there's still this discussion around, for instance, whether or not you prevent a powerful leader like Donald Trump from spreading uh, disinformation or misinformation. And Twitter and Facebook have taken very different approaches to this. And there's still quite a lot of conversation about what the role is of technology companies and all of this socially, politically. And, uh, you know, it's still a little bit up in the air. Yeah. And, and I guess just to slow the conversation down, um, you know, we touched on some of the ways that technology can help fight the spread of the coronavirus. But Let's focus specifically on AI. So how is AI actually used for, you know, some of these surveillance purposes? Oh, sure. Uh, so, um, you know, there's been a lot of hype around AI. There's been a lot of discussion about the fact that artificial intelligence and specifically machine learning, which is, uh, you know, building algorithms that can learn from their environments on their own, um, that it's going to be used for political propaganda and that it's going to be the next biggest thing. While there's a lot of ethical concerns around AI and, you know, the way that AI gets built and trained, um, for instance, machine learning algorithms get trained by groups of people. So they tag data saying, hey, this looks like this and this looks like this. So a machine learning algorithm can end up being racist. It can end up being biased. 
Um, we haven't seen machine learning and AI be deployed in really sophisticated ways around the world for propaganda purposes yet, although I think that this is really on the horizon and we're starting to see an uptick in, for instance, the use of bots uh, and other types of social media um, tools that are manipulated via AI and machine learning. And, and the best way to think about this, I think, is that AI and machine learning get used for scale. They can be used to massively amplify a particular uh, point of view or to suppress other points of view. And, and that's, that's kind of frightening. Do you think most people actually recognize a bot when they come across it? What do you think, Peter? <laughs> that's very funny. Um, do you, um, and does it have rights if they do? Um, well, yeah, you know, I mean, if I, I mean, if I think when I'm interacting, often, you know, I've no idea whether I'm interacting with a bot or a human. Sometimes these days, because bots are so effective. So, I mean, I wonder whether people really know. Well, so, yeah, yeah. There's lots of questions there. I mean, you, you, usually the way sort of people sort of define these things about uh, it's about sort of like how often you know an account is being used. And I think someone joked the other day that Donald Trump had made 200 messages in one day, which we would probably usually sort of say, oh, that's that looks like bot-like behavior. Um, apparently bots have been becoming much more sophisticated if before they were just churning out the same message on mass um, they've become much more much more uh, much more human like uh, I don't know I, I think most of these most times these days we, we talk about cyborgs so something starts off as a bot and then a human operator will jump on uh, in order to guide it in certain ways um, you know and I you know we hear all about you know chat bots which are quite supple in the way they react to people um you know so 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 they 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 change their conversation within within a within a series of interactions um um so 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 i don't know look i think i think the point that, that there's something bigger at stake here which relates to trust and transparency and we still live in an internet that is essentially um you know we don't really see how material is produced and created um you know i often compare it to old school restaurants where you couldn't see into the kitchen you know we don't really understand why and how algorithms dictate the information environment that we see we don't really understand which of our own data is used to target us we don't really understand if something online is automated organic or a mix or most importantly who's behind it and why so we live in this weird paradox that there's more information than ever before. There's actually much less information about what stands behind that information flow. Um, we had much more in the old media. We knew who owned the newspaper. We knew who owned the TV station. You know, we, we, could, we could critically appraise it. So weirdly, all this noise everywhere, but actually we're strangely in the dark. And I think that does actually eat away at trust at the end of the day. That eats away at our sense that we live in a transparent society. Absolutely. And, you know, not, not only are these, these algorithms a black box, but how can you actually scrutinize it if you don't actually know what's going inside this black box? So, and I would imagine even to scrutinize it, you have to figure out what you're even looking at. So a certain amount of digital literacy has to, has to you know, a person has to have in order to even scrutinize this, this algorithm. So, um, you know, Sam, I guess there's, there's some work being done currently to regulate this space. Um, can you explain a little bit about your thoughts on if this is enough and if there are other steps that should be taken? 
Yeah, uh, that's a great question, Carrie. Um, there's there are steps to be taken that are being taken to regulate the space. Uh, the EU, in particular, has pushed quite a lot of regulation. Germany, um, most of what we see is fines levied against technology firms who are allowing for the hosting of, say, um, disinformation or hateful content. If they leave it up for a certain period of time without taking it down, then the repercussions can be quite large financially. Um, however, we're talking about some of the most powerful companies in the world, uh, and so taking a ding money-wise isn't a huge problem for them unless it's unless we're talking billions. Um, I do tend to think that we need to, to consider the producers of disinformation and propaganda and manipulation, as well as the technology firms. Uh, and we need to start making, you know, their, their, there needs to be some criminal penalties for the production of, say, misinformation about how and where to vote or particularly targeted propaganda against protected groups like say Muslims or, or the Jewish community. And right now, like we, we, we haven't really seen that happen. Um, and so another point to carry is it, which you pointed to is that these algorithms are black box and the technology companies do hold on to a lot of the data. And so we don't have access to know how the algorithms themselves work a lot of the time. And technology companies are actively working to keep that hidden, both for commercial interests, but also because there's potential repercussions that could come for them as well down the road. I mean, I, you know, it's interesting, isn't it, Kerry? You know, just, just thinking, and Peter, maybe you want to comment on this, that on the face of it, it's a massive step forward for the surveillance uh, state and for the surveillance private sector. The amount of data that's been generated in recent weeks you know, is quite phenomenal. And if I think of examples, you know, if I think of Russia, for example, where you had to print off a, a digital pass to leave your home during part of the lockdown, or uh, South Korea, the amount of data on apps that is being collected on contact tracing between people, probably likely to be the same in the United Kingdom when the contact tracing uh, app uh, appears. You know, that that's a, a massive change. So what sort of danger, Peter, do you think that's going to bring in the years ahead that we're going to have to address? I mean, look, I mean, the, the, the nightmare scenario is obviously is obviously China. Um, and and the deal that the Chinese are putting forward is that, yes, we'll collect all this data for you. You're going to have to have all these social credit scores and all these bits of digital identification. And, you know, we'll know from your, you know, from the from from, from the, the color of your of your of your eyeballs where you are at any one point but the deal that they're offering is a very interesting one and saying yes we're going to have this kind of surveillance which feels akin like something out of a sort of stasi regime in, in the 20th century but here's the deal we're going to make the world really efficient and we will find you your ideal job thanks to this data and we will find you your ideal wife and your ideal university course and and this is the strange offer that they're making and what really worries me is that as we move towards regulation in, in democracies, we are thinking about it in a very kind of, you know, rights-based way, which is great, but we have to also kind of get to sort of, I don't know, the emotional and psychological appeal of rights. I mean, why do we need these rights? I mean, the cookies thing was such a failure in, in an emotional way, because it turned out no one cared. So we've really got to get to that place where people really do feel that their privacy and their rights are being offended. Um, and, and we've really got to recover the, the sort of the psychological appeal of, of the democratic version of, of, of a digital 21st century. Because, you know, we miss, it's not just having lots and lots of pieces of paper and stuff. They are actually saying, we're going to make your life safer, cleaner, better, and actually more pleasurable. 
and and we really need to find a way to respond to that. Yeah. Well, go ahead, Sam. I was just going to say, you know, Peter, thinking about the 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 underlying social reasons that people do or don't care about cookies, or that they do or don't care about disinformation, is really important. I also think it's really important that we we look into the reasons why people actually consume disinformation or they consume bad news. There's a lot of research out there that shows that people like to read this stuff and it lines up obviously with the tabloids of the past and, and the present and why people buy them so much. But also, um, you know, I, I wrote this paper with a colleague, Katie Joseph called the demand for deceit. And we thought through all the passive and active drivers of why people psychologically consume disinformation. And the work was astounding because most of the times I spend my time thinking about the tech companies or the producers of this, we have to think about the psychology behind it. I think you're absolutely right. So question, question then for both of you, um, you know, when looking at the pandemic and the use of this information, et cetera, you know, people might buy in that this type of information needs to be collected and these algorithms can, um, can, you know, can dictate an, an outcome as, as the government wishes. But is there an argument to be made that some of this technology that we built for this pandemic should have a sunset clause? So, you know, in particular, when it comes to the, the, the private, the intimate, the community data that, that's, that's being collected, is that part of the conversation right now? Or do you think that the future is really whatever they build right now will be what is status quo in the future? Peter, I guess this question's for you. Look, the virus, without a doubt, is a special moment. It's not just about contact tracing. It's also about government intervention in the economy and furloughing. So I think, I think we all understand this is an emergency situation. Um, and, and I think even governments like Russia, which, you know, there was a real feeling, a real sense from a lot of Russians that, you know, Putin was going to use this to really clamp down on civic rights. Uh, it's unclear to what, to, to what extent they're going to do that because people, I think, are just so hypersensitive to this right now and they're so aware of it. Um, so if I was a government or a company, I would be, I would really use this moment to show that you know, we really respect the rights of the individual. And of course, anything we do now is just for the moment in order to almost deflect attention from all the times I do it anyway. Harry, could I build on that a bit? I have, I have an idea here. I think that, that uh, Peter's, Peter's right, that companies should step forward to show and governments should step forward to show that, that, that there is tr reason for trust and goodwill in the post-COVID world, um, i.e. getting rid of the surveillance. Um, I did some thinking on this recently. I wrote an article in Foreign Affairs uh, about surveillance and the worries that we're talking about and the ways in which, you know, if after COVID is done, this surve these surveillance systems stay up, we'll be in some trouble. Um, and the evidence out there does show that governments were doing this before COVID was, was occurring. With the normalization of contact tracing, we should be very, uh, we should, should levy a high level of scrutiny against governments to make sure that they stop doing this when COVID is done. Um, but also the fact is, and Peter's points about cookies get to this, this happens in the commercial sphere a ton. Um, scholars like Joseph Thoreau at the University of Pennsylvania have been tracking the ways that companies themselves track us all the time and how they buy and sell that data almost in real time, and that its, it's, its use is getting increasingly sophisticated. And so while Cambridge Analytica might have been hyping themselves up a little bit with their psychographic marketing back in 2016, the amount of data that's out there now and the ways in which people can be tracked, not only geographically, but also through a number of other mechanisms are, are pretty worrying. And so as a society, we have to stay up to date and demand 
for that kind of information to be to be deleted or for the practices to stop when the virus stops. You're relying a lot, though, Samuel, aren't you, on the goodwill of governments? <laughs> you know, history, history, yeah. history tells us that they're, they're quick to uh, take the benefits of surveillance for themselves and very slow to roll back when uh, when it's not needed. That's right. I think Shoshana Zuboff, um, you know, who, who has a new book on this, would say that that it would it is a bit of a slippery slope and that once they've gotten the toehold uh, in in the ability to do this contact tracing, they're not going to let it go. They're not they're not something for us to watch out for. Uh, let me remind you, you're listening to Pocket Dilemmas, the podcast which explores the political and economic problems which are shaping our world. You can review us on iTunes, email us at dilemmas at ebrd.com, follow us on Twitter at ebrd. Today's dilemma is technology in the COVID-19 era a threat to democracy or is it a force for good and how much should we trust it? Uh, we were discussing just a few minutes ago the question of disinformation. In fact, you raised that, Samuel. Uh, in particular, you know, the rise, the worrying rise that we're seeing of misinformation online during this uh, COVID crisis. Now, some social media platforms, some public broadcasters, they've introduced the fact-checking function. I was wondering, a uh, question relief to you both, but maybe Samuel, first of all, how useful is, is fact-checking, do you think, to, to uh, combat the rise of disinformation and misinformation? That's a, a really good question, Jonathan, because we see so many fact-checking uh, efforts uh, going online and digital, and there's lots of companies getting into this space. The research on it's pretty divided. Uh, in fact, a lot of the research out there shows that fact-checking efforts, once someone's seen a bit of disinformation, so purposefully spread false content, once they've seen it and then they get fact-checked, the fact-checking doesn't work very well because they, they're already buying into some sort of conspiratorial thinking. And so the fact that someone from the top down comes and says, hey, you spread this thing and you know, the subtext is, you're silly, you shouldn't have done this people kind of reject it. And so we need an overhaul of the fact-checking system. I would say that we need an overhaul that thinks through the reasons that people consume this kind of information or disinformation, and then addresses the larger societal issues. Uh, so, you know, people oftentimes are spreading disinformation or misinformation, which is ac accidentally spread, because they're part of a group that they identify with. And until we address the underlying psychological and social reasons that people spread this stuff, we're only going to be putting a bandaid on the issue, I think. Yeah. So, you, so um, sort of the research initiative that I that I um, have at the LSE, which is going to be moving to Johns Hopkins, actually, if I'm if if air travel ever resumes, um, that's exactly what we decided to focus on. We we do look at you know the various sort of the supply side of disinformation, but we're much more focused on the demand side. I, I think we're in kind of an arms race, and that's a bad metaphor, but I'm going to use it with the propagandists to understand. It's who's going to understand audiences better and then whether they're going to be able to um, engage audiences often in a very manipulative way in a non-transparent way and whether we those are kind of the forces that, that still believe in in kind of deliberative democracy and an evidence-based policy making whether we can engage audiences by really understanding you know uh, their interests their cognitive biases but doing it in a transparent way engaging people in a transparent way and 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 talking to them um, with 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 the respect that you know when you listen to them and when you understand them, simply lobbing facts down at people from on high may have been possible when there were like four TV stations and the BBC dominated all of them. But in a world where people can self-select their own reality, those of us, whether we're public service journalists or we're involved in 
doing kind of public education around science or around the coronavirus. Um, we have a real duty to, to understand people. And there's ways. And look, if we don't, the other side will. They are sucking, you know, all the data they can, all the psychological insights they have. Sure, Cambridge Analytica, Analytica were, were overselling themselves. But there was a reason that pitch worked, is that people who are involved in the manipulation business, they do know you've got to understand audiences. And I'm actually, as we're talking, I'm sitting at the BBC, uh, just finishing off a programme about science. And, um, and really, like, public service journalism, which should really be at the forefront of this, has been so slow to embrace this kind of this new digital landscape. Uh, and we'll keep on losing. You know, Jonathan, this actually reminds me of, of the beginning of the virus, the beginning of the pandemic. Um, you know, when healthcare professionals were still learning all about, you know, the virus and what the outcomes might be, social media had begun to speculate about the potential health, uh, the potential health impacts of the virus and its effect, etc. I must have gotten a dozen emails and texts with articles about the virus from sources that I'd never heard of, or, you know, my friend's cousin's brother's dentist has x information about the virus you know it was just it was confusing um i'm still getting know, them <laughs> right i am too i am too so this all fuels panic amongst the, the public and so i guess my question for you sam is how has this made the handling of the pandemic more challenging so sometimes they're not this this it's not this misinformation campaign maybe from this government but it is just all this misinformation that's just being you know even piecemealed uh, person by person and are these challenges different than than the same type of misinformation and other types of that's, crises? That's a fantastic question. And, and it, it speaks to the ways in which propaganda and what we call computational propaganda has evolved. Um, now we see a growth in the use of disinformation uh, over encrypted messaging apps. So things like WhatsApp or Signal or Telegram, um, which are meant to be private and meant to be used by people so that they can avoid detection. Maybe activists, say, on the ground in the Middle East might use them to coordinate. But simultaneously, we've seen a growth in what uh, political communication specialists call relational organizing. So this idea that you need to hit people uh, where they're at with the messaging and the best way to sell something, this is built on advertising and, and marketing of old, the best way to sell something is to get someone that, that you care about, your friend, to tell you to buy it. Um, and so now what we're seeing around coronavirus um, is the use of these applications that are kind of walled off, like WhatsApp, um, to spread misleading content between families. And oftentimes what we'll see is uh, propagandists, like someone who actually wants to spread disinformation purposefully, so someone from a government or a po particular political group, seeding and fertilizing a bit of disinformative content in a larger group on WhatsApp. And then there's a cascade effect wherein that message, that disinformation gets spread accidentally by people just grasping for some kind of information in a huge way. And I think one of the the places we can look to, to to study this as a case study is is India. So for the last five years, WhatsApp has really been used to spread a, a tremendous amount of disinformation and misinformation. And oftentimes, the manipulators rely upon people to do the work for them. Fascinating, Peter. What what do you think? And and do some of these channels uh, or some of these mediums, like a WhatsApp or Facebook, do they have a responsibility then to kind of counteract this or to take it down? I mean. Look, the, the way we try to frame it uh, usually is, is talking in terms of risk. And I do think when we talk about public health, we can talk about specific risks. Yeah. So, you know, if there's material going around, you know, drink bleach in order to make yourself 
uh, feel better from COVID, then 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 you know uh, that's a, a real sort of risk to the individual. And I think yes, I think I think companies do have responsibility to take it down. You you I mean as as you mentioned the real the real challenge is is WhatsApp groups that are that are that are encrypted, um, and um, you know it's it is sort of the right of of people to spread nonsense inside their own small commun- communities. Um, I think usually that's going to be then talking about the regulatory side of that. That's that's probably going to be about restricting the size of these groups and restricting their their abilities to um, to kind of spread that misinformation. I mean, there's you know you, there's nothing people do have a right to meet 10, 20 people uh, offline as well and spread absolute nonsense. But you know if they're creating huge demonstrations calling for drinking bleach, then then that becomes a public health issue. So again, we're into kind of the beginning of our conversation. What's the limit between private and public? And, and how do we how do how do we sort of draw these new borders in our society? It's interesting about uh, you're talking there, Peter, about the beginning of new conversations, and, and I guess there are a lot of those going on in this crisis. And one of the ones is about the right uh, relationship between the state and the tech world. You know, Samuel mentioned a short while ago, it'd be nice if, in effect, the state walked away from some of its. Uh, more intrusive surveillance after this crisis is over. But Peter, first of all, what do you think is the optimal model then for the future relationship between the state and the tech world? Well, I'm, I'm definitely. I guess I'm, I'm European, so so I'm not. I'm not in any way kind of like, you know, shocked by the idea that there should be some regulation of the information space. Um, and I have American friends who, uh, like Jeff Jarvis at NYU, who, who have told me that 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 means I'm I'm pretty much the Stasi. Um, but um, I think we do have a tradition of, of regulating the information space. Uh, so it's not something I'm terrified of at all. Um, we will probably need, you know, independent regulators that do this regulation. But something, uh, and I think that regulation has to be around sort of transparency, having oversight of algorithms, um, and, and so on and so forth. I think also supporting an online space, which is a public service online space, which is not commercially driven. Um, I mean, obviously, I don't think we should ban Facebook. Um, as you know, COVID has shown it has plenty of uses, but I don't think it's the place we should be having our, our political debate. I think that should be probably be a sort of what, 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 is the, what, what, what is the tech version of the BBC? You know, what is that public space which is non-commercialized where our, nobody's interested in using our data for for commercial purposes um, and the data that's used is done for public service purposes like health data but but so i think that's something to, to to think about and i think it could be the role of the state to support that um through the successful public service models we have we have in different countries so there's that but also something i'd like to see much more of is the courts involved in the online space because at the end of the day I think courts have to start making decisions around whether it was legal or illegal to take a piece of content down. I think the content moderation question is not one that can be left purely to uh, to the tech companies. Uh, I think I think there's, there's a space for the law to 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 step in. Uh, for that, obviously, we need sort of clarity about what the laws are. I think the laws should really be around. You know, companies are allowed to police to to have their own rules for their own spaces. If Facebook doesn't want nudity on, on its platform, fair enough. But then it has to make sure that it abides by those laws. Um, a little bit like, you know, this this kerfuffle around Facebook about fact-checking Trump. You know, if Twitter has rules around certain types of speech being deemed to encourage violence, then, um, then and there's clarity around their terms of service, then, you know, Trump's complaint should go to the courts when he says, look, this is, 
you know, by fact checking my statements around um, around violence, um, you've broken your terms of service. That, that that shouldn't be fought in the court of public opinion. That that should go to a court. Interesting thought. So, Sam, where do you think we should go on this? Apart from the state, perhaps, uh, hopefully, pulling back a little bit. So. Uh, there, there's got to be more regulation. In the United States, I, I actually teach media law at University of Texas, and I spent some time at Oxford. And when I was in England, I realized like regulation is one of the things that's going to have to be brought to bear on the companies. The companies would have us think, and, and it's become readily apparent with Mark Zuckerberg's recent response to fact-checking Donald Trump, they would have us think that they are, and this is their tagline, not the arbiters of truth. They do not make decisions about which content people see and why. But the fact of the matter is, is that they absolutely do. Trending algorithms, the Facebook newsfeed, all of these, I, all of these technologies are built in such a way that they prioritize information to us. Part of the problem right now is that uh, there's a disconnect between the people who are making laws or overseeing the law in the courts and the tech companies themselves. There's no real connective tissue between the two. A lot of the laws and regulations we see created um, in the EU and elsewhere here in the States are, are either misinformed or they don't really take into consideration how the technology actually works. works. Groups like the uh, Ford Foundation in the United States are working to solve this. Um, you know, in the 1950s, there, there didn't really exist the, in the United States this idea of public interest law. And so a number of uh, philanthropic endeavors and others came together to create public interest law. Well, um, the Ford Foundation now and others are arguing that we need public interest technologists to really make these connections between regulators and governments and the technology firms, because otherwise what ends up happening is either the regulation is too heavy handed or uh, the technology companies get off scotch-free and don't end up having to be held accountable to the law. Mm, interesting. All right, listen, as we come to uh, towards the close here, let's try and draw some uh, conclusions on this. Uh, Samuel, then, maybe we'll stick with you for the moment. What do you think we should be looking out for? What are the main takeaways that we, as ordinary members of the public, should be looking out for in this arena in the, as we emerge eventually from the coronavirus? I think that we should be really wary of uh, data collection, that this is going to be the um, constant and uh, you know big issue that we return to in all of this how is personal data being collected and how is it being used and it needs to be made a more uh, a more palpable more understandable issue for the for the public um, in the united states what we've seen with collective action surrounding the george floyd protests is that collective action can actually create change um, you know the internet might seem boring um, and it, it you know the use of data might seem not of concern, but if we can make this a big public issue, I think we can create a lot of change surrounding it. And so uh, if people understand that their location, that they're, when they're going to the clinic, that that's being tracked, when they're going to uh, a church service, that that's being tracked and then used against them, I think that people will really start to speak out against it. And uh, that's the way that I think change will happen because right now politics um, in the United States, in the UK, uh, in a lot of the world's largest democracies is very divided, very polarized. And so in order for change to happen, I think it's going to have to come from the bottom up. Peter, what do you think? What should we be looking out for? I think we have to, uh, the way into this, to finding that, 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 um, to finding that place where, where people really start caring about this issue, and I agree it's all about data collection, is 
is trying to, we need to be able to imagine what is a democratic empowered individual online? Um, you know, I think somebody online should have the right to understand which of their data is being used to target them so they can respond to it and criticize it. Um, and they should have the right to understand if they're being targeted with one message based on their data, is their neighbor being targeted with the same one? And we should have the right to understand why algorithms show us one thing and not another. We should have the right to understand if something online is organic or a bot. So we, we need to kind of get back to that. What is our vision of, of, a, of a democratically empowered individual online, citizen online? And how is that different to what an authoritarian state? Because certainly the Putins and Xi Jinping's of this world don't want their citizens to understand how they're being targeted, how they manipulate algorithms. We've got to kind of find what is the difference between democracy and non-democracy and why it matters to people. Because I do agree with 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 Sam. I think I don't think people mind being targeted with messages based on their data, but they want to know how and why. Um, or else we can't really function as citizens, or else we're just living in the dark. And and that's what we've got to find. We've got to find where 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 people, you know, people's sense of dignity has to be connected to these things. Peter and Sam, thank you very much. Uh, Kerry, where do you stand on all this? Uh, we've been listening now to some of these arguments. Our dilemma, if you remember, is technology in the COVID-19 era a threat to democracy? Is it a force for good? How much should we trust it? Where, where do you think you've come out on all of this? I mean, you know me, Jonathan. I am I'm an optimist through and through and through. But this topic, it just I think this conjures up more questions than than it answers. Like, you know, should we question why is the data be, being collected anyway and to what end? Also, like you know, like Peter and Sam mentioned, who can use this data and who owns it, but also things like, you know, can data from sources like we're, like, like we're originally collecting uh, right now for health services, can it be combined with, let's say, uh, policing? So just all of these questions I have just were not really answered, but it's, I think it's, it's a great, it's a great way for me to be able to um, address these these questions and these concerns I have, and then hopefully um, work through them um, as I as I move on with my career and with my knowledge on this subject. But I I think for me the big takeaway it really two things digital skills. I think in order for this to be um, to be a long term thing, I think people need to actually start to get comfortable with technology with coding digital skills just really need to be a priority, I think, for, for youth out there, because more and more we're going to be interfacing with these algorithms and governed by them. And then also, you know, this came in pretty strong, but policy translation, there is a clear lack of the court's ability to understand how some of these uh, algorithms are affecting us or some of the, 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 the tech companies might be obfuscating, um, you know, questions or regulations. And so there really needs to be something, somebody um, that is able to translate, I think, a lot of these, these issues, because I, I think that's, that's a big gap. Yeah, it reminds me, I have to say, listening to all of this, it's a bit like the debate over the guns uh, issue in some countries, you know, with the gun lobby saying guns aren't dangerous, it's the hands of the people who use them. Uh, that cause the danger. And you know, it's a bit like that with technology, you know, with some people saying technology is not dangerous, it's the way it's used. Uh, you know, and I, I think that's an interesting analogy to me because, you know, it can be for good, it can be for bad, it, you know, it depends how it's used. Uh, and, uh, but I do worry that we've seen such an expansion in what people are willing to permit in terms of the use of technology during this crisis that uh, you know, we, may, we may be in for a lot of trouble down the line, especially if governments can't walk back from where they were. 
in the way that uh, Sam was suggesting. A big thank you to Sam and for Peter. It's been a fascinating discussion, Kerry. I've really enjoyed it. A uh, big thank you to you, the audience, as well, for listening. Uh, you have been listening to Pocket Dilemmas. It's our podcast which explores the political and economic problems shaping our world. Uh, review us on iTunes. We love that. Email us at dilemmas at ebrd.com and follow us on Twitter, of course. See you next time. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by the EBRD. We'll be back soon with a new episode. In the meantime, send us your feedback, suggestions and ideas on dilemmas at ebrd.com. And remember, reviewing and rating us helps others to find us. Until next time.